0: Hey everybody, you're listening to Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Eric Holthaus, speaking with you this week from St. Paul, Minnesota. If you're listening to this from a post-apocalyptic, Pokemon-dominated, global warming-ravaged future, first, hi, welcome, glad you made it. This is a show that will explain to you how your reality came to be. So yeah, sit back and nerd out with us for a little while. We're getting to crunch time in the election, and that makes me wonder, is this finally, finally, the election in which climate change is going to play a big role? We have so much in store for today's show. Pokemon's basically making people go outside for the first time. Bernie endorsed Hillary today, and Trump is still Trump. So yeah, there's just basically sheer craziness going on. So let's get right to it. As always, my two co-hosts, Andy Revkin of the New York Times, who's also a senior fellow for environmental understanding at Pace University, is joining us from the Hudson Valley. How's it going, Andy? Good. And in Orono, Maine, is Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine. What's up, Jacqueline? I hear that you have been throwing some red and white balls at fake monsters.
1: Uh, Hang on just a second. There's a a wild Eevee in my office, (laughs) and I... I have no I idea what that means. <laughs> uh, it's actually pretty great because the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine, where I work, is a pokey stop. So I get lots of balls. That came <laughs> out wrong.
0: Okay. Um, this has been just like what everyone has been talking about this week. And to set the scene, uh, this game is a free download. It was released last week. In the last week, it's been the number one smartphone app, and uh, you know, a- ahead of of I think almost ahead of Twitter and the, the Pokemon go is based on augmented reality. Basically you're walking around outside. You really, you in real life are walking around outside ch- chasing fake monsters that appear through your ca- phone's camera and then stopping at random, you know, um, landmarks throughout the neighborhood to fill up for, for balls or whatever else you need to like capture these monsters. So depending on how far you walk, there are more rare stuff that appears. Is that right, Jacqueline? Um
1: I don't actually know because <laughs> I haven't made it that far yet. <laughs> I haven't made it that far because I've got a grant due next week. Okay. Um, so no, but um, yeah. So what's really cool about this is that I've just been seeing so many people talk about how it's getting them outside and um, exploring their neighborhoods for the first time, because all of these poke stops, which are sort of like these, like you said, these places where you fill up on supplies, they're all landmarks and cool, you know, fountains or, or churches and synagogues or, you know, statues or cool buildings. And it's getting people to explore their neighborhoods and also just the, the natural environment as well.
0: I think they crowdsourced. the. It, this was a Google spinoff that created the game and they crowdsourced their resource of um, landmarks from a previous game that's somewhat similar. Um, it, it, I thought that was kind of fascinating to me. And also there's this backstory. The creator of Pokemon had a childhood interest in bug collecting that inspired the game. And um, so as Tokyo was growing in the 70s, these insect habitats disappeared and and the creator um, uh, turned to making video games instead.
1: Wow, that's Um, really cool.
0: And that's that's yeah, that's from a that's from an L.A. Times um, story that was talking about how these, uh, you know, the the players are encountering real life animals and posting them to social media. Um, and there's a few scientists that have volunteered to help identify the species that that people take pictures of, like actual real world real animals. Um,
1: yeah, there's a. It's it's funny because it's like it's come full circle because um, there's this hash, hashtag #pokeblitz p o k e b l i t z that Morgan Jackson started on Twitter um, that you can, basically, if you find, a, the, the idea is if while you're wandering around looking for, you know, these imaginary monsters, if you happen to find real life species and you want to know what they are, then you can use Twitter to help out.
0: So, Andy, um, y- you were saying something about citizen science uh, somewhere on the internet <laughs> I saw earlier today. Um, what was that all about? Well,
2: you know, the, it's great to see what's happening with this Pokemon game. In fact, my 18-year-old son and his friends were running around town the other night mysteriously, and now I know what they're doing. Um, because it, there's so many ways to do what I call a hybrid life where you can kind of engage, especially young people can be engaged with looking at nature and interacting with it in ways that um, uh, include devices, and that can be cool. Uh, there's this, uh, I saw John Foley from the California Academy of Sciences, uh, on Facebook, you talked about uh, iNaturalist, iNaturalist.org, I think it is, which is a, a, an app that where you can kind of like do your own bio blitz and run around and, and log stuff and it gets on, you know, geotagged and it's out there and people start sharing and uh, sharing things. In Aus- Austria, there's a science enterprise trying to improve satellite imagery interpretation by, it's called GeoWiki, so it's geo- uh, geo-wiki dot org and they have people roped in uh, at the beta level helping them sift through thousands of satellite images to do um ground tr- to help with the ground truthing to help realize you know what what is that actually looking at and then how can you r- improve imp- interpretations of satellite imagery and it's in the classrooms um, margaret rubega i stumbled on her years ago Uni- university of connecticut her class has a hashtag bird class, and she teaches a bird biology class. And, and part of their standing assignment is they used to write this in notebooks, but now they tweet it. So when they're out there, outside of class, they, um, you know, they see a bird doing something weird. They tweet about it, or, and, mm-hmm. and that's become kind of a cool thing. So it's like all and around then you And
0: you get feedback from, from bird biologists all over the world sometimes.
2: Yeah, yeah, they they started getting queries. Like some other people noticed the tag and started saying, hey, you know, I was in Arizona, I saw this eagle, and I thought it was a golden eagle. Could that be possible? That was one of the queries that came their way. So it's kind of, I I just love that. Yeah. Uh, And
0: then, you know, the super depressing fact that none of these things will ever be as popular as Pokemon is right now. (laughs) <laughs>
2: wow! Oh, oh but they can be like minecraft sure, there's minecraft.edu no. mm-hmm. there's like this educational version of minecraft which is huge it's like you know mm-hmm. so it, i don't know it takes educators yeah. or or app creators who with a little bit of like the planet in mind i think they could do both
0: yeah and then on that note we have at chris Straub on twitter uh, the other day saying, dear Nintendo, please put super rare Pokemon at polling places this November. <laughs> 30,000 retweets. <laughs> that's
2: so, awesome. You yeah. know, voter turnout. You know, that's mm. an issue for young people. It was an issue in Brexit. They could have used that.
1: I mean, in some of some of these places are, um, you know, the, the Pokestops or places where the Pokemon show up are in museums, which um, or, you know, on my campus, the Campana Elm, which is this elm tree that's famous for, you know, being, um, uh, you know, one of the early elm trees to survive Dutch elm disease because of the care and, and treatment it received here um, by scientists. You know, it's a it's a Pokestop or um, or no. Yeah, it's a Pokestop. So, you know, that's it's like these natural history um, objects or, or locations um, are also places people are now going to. And if that's what it takes, that's fine. Yes. Three, so
0: three thumbs up for Pokemon here yeah um, sounds good okay so if Pokemon yeah if if pokemon doesn't fundamentally alter how society <laughs> operates um, we'll have election um, later <laughs> this year and so you know for what I want to talk about the rest of the time is is uh how uh does climate change fit in to that election we've already had um you know by my estimation, and and by I think a a lot of other people's estimation, um, some of the most rigorous debate about climate change, even though it it didn't really feel like it, I guess, at the time, um, the bar is very low when it comes to debating climate change among political figures in the U.S. So during the Democratic primary, at least, um, we had Bernie Sanders, you know, unabashedly saying that climate change is the number one issue we face as a as a human global society. And we had, uh, you know, Sanders supporters criticizing Hillary for in the past, you know, supporting fracking and not uh, being instantly opposed to the Keystone Pipeline. And there was a lot of Division and that did not get enough play, I think, in the media. But among voters, I think it was it was obvious that there was a big difference. And Andy, it it seems like this could be a major, again, major uh, part of this election among voters. Yet not necessarily picked up that way in the media. Um, Do you think this will be? I mean, do you think climate change will be a deciding factor in this election?
2: Not even close. Okay. I, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're letting me down.
2: The, uh, I mean, there <laughs> All might... that buildup
0: and, and just... I'm no.
2: sorry, but there there might be one district of one congressman somewhere. Okay. You know, if for congressional races, these little things can make a difference. But for the presidential race, I think, uh, as I said on my blog today, there's this new uh, data out of Yale really cool ongoing study of human uh, human <laughs> American attitudes on global warming six Americas people can just google for that phrase and they've been doing this since two thousand and eight and you know there's the shifts and uh, there's basically they run from alarmist uh, i mean not alarmist alarmed to dismissive, and then in between there are all these kind of mushy categories like um, maybe people you know people are sort of disengaged doubtful concerned and um there's been fluctuations, but basically the fluctuation now is back to where it was in 2008. Uh, meaning, uh, the alarmed are more, there's 17% of Americans are in the alarmed category, and most of them um, see climate, obviously, or the environment more generally as a top issue. But that's it's like a percentage of a percentage. And then when you look at that mushy middle though, and you look at the Yale, it's Yale and George Mason who do this work, and it clear, very quickly fuzzes out, you know. The um, economy is kind of in gear, but for a lot of people it's not. And economy is like at the top of virtually every other category's issues. Um, the 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 dismissives or terrorism is their top issue. And, and and then when you think about that against the context of like a Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump race, it's like uh, the people who dislike Trump, or shall I say hate Trump for what he stands for, are already there. and. And the people who um, you know, so one question is, will will Bernie voters enthusiastically support Hillary for the sake of defeating Trump or or sit out uh, because she didn't she wasn't as definitive on fracking as, as he was um, that that is an issue. But there too, the alarmed you you know if if you're so alarmed that you're not willing to compromise and vote for Hillary, that could actually be a problem. So actually in a counter I'm just thinking that through now in a counter in way that could actually. If too many people are too alarmed, then Hillary could maybe. I'm just thinking, you know, thinking out loud here. Maybe she could lose steam if people are just sort of like, say, they're not going to vote for anybody. That kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and and later on in the show, I want to get into to Jill Stein too, she's inserted herself in the last few days into the election. But um, but I want to get a little bit deeper into that report, um, Andy, and yeah, you're you're right. You know, adding together. The 17% that are in that alarmed category that are, you know, far and away have climate change as their number one issue. Um, there are a bunch of people at the other spectrum that have global warming listed as last on their priority list. So, that and I mean that's what I mean is that this is such a polarizing uh, issue. More than any, almost more than any other issue, and there are the several surveys that have, have have pointed pointed that out that climate change is among the most polarizing topic in American politics right now. Seventy two percent rank global warming as either first or last on their priority list um, in in the Six Americas report, and although at the same time, ninety percent say that they would be more likely to vote against a climate denier so there are i think there's this latent prioritization of the environment and of climate and you know if all else things being equal which they obviously aren't uh people will vote for someone who supports action on climate change period i think that's what we're seeing consistently now in in surveys
1: I, i think that makes sense i mean you There's so much going on right now in terms of social justice issues and economic concerns. And so, you know, a lot of voters are are dealing with it's it's like when you have to deal with the acute versus chronic things, right? We have to deal with some of the acute issues first in order to deal with some of the, the, the chronic problems. And for a lot of people, climate change is still a chronic problem. It's not yet an acute problem. And but on the other hand, I almost don't even think it matters whether or not this is a, a climate change election, or whether at least whether people are motivated to vote because of climate change, um, because regardless, you know the the platform, both the DNC's platform and Hillary Clinton's platform on climate change are some of the most are, are the most aggressive um, that have ever been. Put out there and in, so American, politics, it, yes. in mm. American politics, yes, but in mainstream American politics by a mainstream candidate, mm-hmm. um, yes. And which so it's like even though you know Hillary Clinton doesn't need to run on climate change to win, her policy is, which I just reread this morning, is is really strong. I mean, it's not as strong as it should be in some areas, but it's the first I've ever seen that talks about climate justice and environmental justice and ties into the needs of you know people of color and you know working class people and so i mean it's um it's it sets much stronger national goals with actual numbers behind them compared to the 2008 DNC platform and we're just now getting some of the details of 2016's platform but i mean it's it, it's just it reflects to me just sort of a general given that this is this is a platform you have to take seriously or climate change has to be taken seriously on your platform i mean 2008 was so the DNC 2008 platform was so wishy-washy um, you know, it was really focused on energy security, um, a little bit on green energy and the economy. Um, the word fracking never shows up at all. Um, nuclear is only brought up in terms of safety and armaments. Um, there's one phrase to clean coal. Um, and, you know, compared to now where it's much more specific, um, there are actual targets in, in terms of Clinton's platform and presumably the DNC platform, which we're learning more about now. Um, it's, so it's really exciting from that perspective.
2: Um, well, the, the the other cool thing the the Six Americas work was so behind the stuff that looks that discouraging about division. And I wrote about this in 2015. There's this amazing um, if you sidestep climate change, which is for many people it's just as much of a badge as abortion or gun rights. You if you talk about clean energy, if you talk about resilience, you know no one wants their community to be flooded, especially no no one I know, including a lot of libertarians want the government to be bailing out people for building in flood zones or fire zones. There's tons of opportunity to build um, a bipartisan head of steam on the issues that, that matter, clean energy and resilient communities, and, and not having to get into the, the endless, it would be a lifetime argument over how bad is global warming. So this t- And the same work points to that. It's this, there's no red and blue states, actually, when you look at it. America, the way Six Americas has done with that in mind so i think that's really good news
0: so another thing i'm seeing is that um and this is really hard you know yeah so it's sanders voters that we're really talking about here it is people that are prioritizing climate change as their number one single issue um thing that they're voting on which is a significant part of the electorate i think you know it up to, you know, up to, what what was that, 15 to 17% of the electorate, according to Six Americas. So if a a huge number of those people sit home because they're pissed at Hillary, um, I have voted for Jill Stein in the past. I'm a Jill Stein supporter. But if in a close election, people vote for Jill Stein, you know, and she's probably going to, like, tweet me about this and say how angry she is. But, you know, like, you can swing the election. And I got super pissed in... 2012, too, that my friend in Colorado in a swing state voted for Jill Stein. And this is something that Sanders people are going to have to sort of game out in their minds. It's like, you know, do I vote for Hillary, who I don't really like, or do I sit out? And, you know, that's going to have big consequences if that happens in, in big um, if either of those things happen in big numbers.
2: All I can say is, you're right. Um, this has happened before, <laughs> you know, uh, mm-hmm. year 2000. It was, um, and
0: yeah, yeah, no, Sierra Club just put out a, a report, I think today or yesterday, um, that's entitled Trump versus the world, saying that if elected, Donald Trump would be the only climate denier head of state in the entire world. Um, at the same time, you know, 56% of Trump voters, this is according again to the Six Americas Report, 56% of Trump voters say climate change is happening. And I went to a, um, a Trump rally earlier this year for Slate um, in, in, in Tucson and talked to, to people there in line. And it is a decent cross-section of decent, you know, decent people, just like any political rally would be. Um, The number of extremists in this country are much smaller, I think, than what uh, is is sort of out there in the media. And there are a lot of people that are saying, you know, he's running for president. I want to go see what he has to say. That's it. And I would say about 60% of the people that I talked to, which kind of jives with that number, um, were in general supportive of action on climate change. And... At the end of the day um i think andy is actually right (laughs) as much as i don't want to admit it that there are other pressing issues that trump climate change for the vast majority of voters and
2: i have an um, i have an idea like maybe if you if you want to go for jill stein maybe you could cut a deal and find recruit someone to vote from the other side to vote for gary johnson the libertarian
0: or i've heard of this thing too if you're in like new york or california um or or if you're not in New York or California or Illinois, you know, one of the, the super blue states um, and you want to vote for Jill Stein, you trade your vote with someone in one of those states.
2: Kind of like cap and trade. You can, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: I like it. <laughs> we, we see how well that works out <laughs> usually.
1: Yeah, I, it's interesting because, you know, I, I'm someone for whom the environment, you would think the environment would be, you know, one of the most important things that decides my vote. And it is one of the most important things. But I also... Uh, I'm not just an environmentalist in a vacuum or a climate scientist in a vacuum. I'm a woman. I have friends who are trans. I have friends of color, students of color, you know, a a lot of people that I care about who, you know, so for me, again, it's like this, the balancing the acute versus chronic, you know, it, you know, if I'm, if, if, if if I'm not alive to vote, in four years, then it doesn't matter, right? Or if my friends are not alive to vote. And for some people it is a life or life or death death issue. You have to be alive to care about climate change. And that might sound hyperbolic, but I know a lot of people who are seriously concerned that, you know, a Trump presidency will get them killed one way or another, whether that's because of a lack of access to healthcare or, you know, environmental issues or um, you know, transphobic laws or things like that. And you know so it's, it's interesting because I, I don't know Andy what your um, politics are. Um, Eric just uh, said he supported Stein in the past. Um, I, I have been a Hillary Clinton supporter um, since the beginning. Even though I come from Vermont and was you know initially enthusiastic that Bernie was running, um, you know ultimately, I have I'm, I'm very wonky and so I've just really liked her, her detailed policies. And I know a lot of one thing I've done, you know, just having a lot of Sanders supporter friends on, say, Facebook, um, a lot of folks I've talked to just don't actually know what her platforms are, um, uh, and don't know that they're, they're as detailed as they are. So, uh, you know, I would encourage people to, to actually just to read her platform on climate change, and, you know, other issues, too. But, you know, she, she cites the science, she um, is very clear that, she wants to pass these laws um, and these policies on on her climate platform, and she literally says, "quote, without relying on climate deniers in Congress to pass legislation." Unquote. So the fact that she comes out and says that, you know, as a uh, as a candidate, I think is just is a is a pretty remarkable statement, and maybe not something people would expect. Um, I also have thoughts about fracking if we have time, but if we don't, that's okay. <laughs> that too. might be another, another day. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah. So in speaking of fracking and speaking of, 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 um, waiting for Congress, uh, this weekend there was the, uh, the, 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 the DNC platform fight in Orlando, I think it was. And this was, you know, sort of like. An amazing moment, I think, in in terms of climate politics in the U.S. In terms of um, Sanders supporters sort of getting their way in the Democratic Party, we had uh, price on carbon in the Democratic platform, even though Hillary was, you know, pretty well set against against it, against talking about it at least, um, saying that if something is not able to get through Congress, then it's somewhat a waste of time in terms of things that are requiring policy. So we should instead focus on, as Barack Obama has done, focus on getting uh, changes through as quickly as possible that are are designed to reduce emissions um, through executive order. And it seems like up to now, that's exactly the path that Hillary will 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 take yet there is pricing carbon now in the official DNC platform and there is um prioritizing wind and solar above um other forms of energy in the DNC platform now and that's directly attributable to um the support of uh support for Bernie Sanders and his in his sort of climate hockey uh uh policy preferences i think
2: yeah and that that proves and that proves the point that it's a long standing point that you know, there needs to be an edge for there to be a center and 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 the edge matters in that sense. You know, no one expects that the United States will ban fracking nationally. It's, as I wrote not long ago, the EIA, the Energy and Information Administration already has shifted it. They don't even call it, quote unquote, unconventional gas anymore. But if no one were pressing for at least tight, much tighter regs on fracking, which is what I've been pursuing. Or banning it to challenge those who want to sustain that part of our energy system to make sure it's um, if you're going to do it you do it uh, right you, you know if you ha- don't have that tussle then then nothing happens.
1: you know there's this kind of all or nothing um, mentality at times and I and I worry that in the pursuit of the all we get we you know, in an all or nothing world, you pursue all and you get nothing. But in in an incremental world or a world where there's compromise, you make progress. Um, You know, and, and I agree that on some issues, yeah, we absolutely need quick action. But on the other hand, you know, I... There was this meme that was going around, um, you know, do you support fracking? And Bernie Sanders, it was like, no, you know, it was based on the one of the debates. And Hillary's answer was like, OK, well, when any locality or state is against it or when the release of methane or contamination of water is present. And she had a couple other issues. Um, and, and people kind of laughed at that, like, oh, it's just Hillary kind of, you know, uh, being wishy-washy, and Sanders is right because he has the one-word answer, and it's like, yeah, of course we should stop fracking. But if we if we turned off all the fracking machines tomorrow, what would make up that energy? And you know, a lot of my friends who are climate scientists actually thought that Hillary's answer was the better one in a lot of ways because it's actually more nuanced, and you know, this is going to be a, a long-term process, at least you know, taking you know, 5 to 10 to 15 years to get off of fracking, you know, because if in the short term getting off of fracking means, you know, increasing our coal usage or something like that, because that's the quickest and easiest way to make up that energy loss while we're developing our green energy infrastructure, um, that's that's going to have a, ne- a net negative in the immediate term for the environment. And so and
0: here, I, here's I, another thing that was really a extremely apparent uh, difference like that in, in the New York Primary debate um, was on Indian Point, the nuclear power plant just north of, of New York City. Actually, probably not that far from where you are, Andy. Eight, eight miles. Eight miles. Okay, so th- there was there was there was this. Actually, Andy, I'll just let you uh, outline that if you if you want to.
2: Well, you know, I, my wife and I, she's an environmental educator, and we differ on whether Indian Point should be relicensed. Um, uh, Cuomo, the governor, um, he has targeted Indian point for closure because there's so many people, you know, around it. There's a film about it that's come out that focuses on the event the lack of any it's a ludicrous thing to think there's an evacuation plan. Um, but Cuomo has been nuanced. He, there's a couple of upstate nuclear power plants, one of which is pretty much going to close. Another one could probably remain open and he has sort of been saying some nukes. And you know, this I, I said this a couple of years ago when I was running a debate between Bobby Kennedy Jr. who's a strident anti-nuker and and the 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 director of the Pandora's Promise movie which is kind of a pro nuclear movie and and I said to Robert Stone the director the first thing I said after the movie showed was it sounds like like if you were going to run a campaign it would be some nukes exclamation point but like this gets back to what Jacqueline was saying how do you get how do you build um, excitement for nuance? How, how do you?
0: How do you build a movement around around you know reasoned policy? Yeah, like
2: like, and I say always like on the nuclear thing. I say, well, let's get let's stop saying anti you know no nukes, some nuke let's at least say, what do you do about existing nuclear power plants, And then do you have any sense that you might support a new nuclear power plant design in the future? Because that at least delineates there's, there's two different questions. One is, and I think they're very different questions and both are important. So, so that just how do you, you know, like how do you foster that discussion is something I try to do a lot.
0: Yeah, well, I want to talk about Trump just very quickly. Let's assume for a second that, you know, this is, this is my... Um, disaster scenario is that we have Bernie people getting behind Jill Stein in a big way. She gets, you know, 25 percent of the vote, which is awesome for, you know, the Green Party, but we get President Trump as a result. And um, what do you think if if you had a vision towards, you know, 2021, is it is it is it reasonable to assume that. You know, one of Trump's big priorities would be to just sort of dismantle left and right US climate policy.
2: I, I don't think he would. Um, I, I, well, there's also this theory that he's going to quit uh, once he wins because he actually doesn't really want the job. And
1: then we get Newt Gingrich. Yeah. Oh, God.
2: Who I interviewed face to face back in 2007 about global warming. And back then he was like, it's a really serious problem. So who the hell knows? You know, there's all this shape shifting that goes on. And they, they, they are masterful chameleons, the two of them. So, I, I think anything could happen if and when Trump gets into office. I don't think it would end up being Trump staying with that caricatured Wallace Wallace off against the world. I, not that this is not that this means I support him in any way, but I, I think he would, if he does get into office, I think he would quickly run to the middle and surround himself with quote unquote smart people, and and something reasonable would. Maybe at least be conceivable, yeah, but I, you know who who the hell knows
0: it's scary to think about, and I think I'm just gonna leave it at that because I really don't know what else to think about it, but then and this is <laughs> this is my, Jacqueline, who we you were talking uh before we started recording about how how like what is the number one thing that climate deniers like chide you for on Twitter and i think mine is that i'm just like scared of climate change <laughs> and i guess it's just been kind of a a, a meme maybe but um <laughs> but i yeah I, I mean i choose not to think about that until it happens because i just don't want to have to think about it instead i think there are many reasonable uh people that are saying that it's not really likely that this scenario would ever happen. So therefore, I'm just choosing not to think about it. I don't know if that's a good decision or not, but that's what I'm doing.
1: I, ju- I, I just think that, you know, if you want to get super stoked about the Green Party, that's fantastic. It's just not, not a good way to go at the national level. I mean, the Green Party for years has thrown itself into these, these doomed national elections and complete, almost completely ignored local and state level races where they could actually make a big difference and build capacity with the exception of some places like minnesota right stephanie's vaughn has written about this um sorry if i mispronounce your name stephanie um but you know just this idea of if this is something you really care about you know there's a time and a place and the national election is not the time or the place especially when midterm elections tend to you know determine the outcome uh, of a lot of these issues much more than presidential races do but nobody goes out and votes for those so um I just think I think that there are there are better strategies that you know aren't going to get people killed
0: so uh, another thing is when Obama was elected we didn't have the scientific uh, foundation I guess the climate science that we do now and Jacqueline you dug into that a little bit for us this week
1: yeah so I you know while I was reading the 2008 DNC platform versus the emerging one now I also went back and Kind of compared the differences between the IPCC AR4 report, which came out right before the 08 election, and the AR5, which came out a couple of years ago, and it's just kind of a nice set of bookends. Um, and I think it also kind of frames this progress that we're making in terms of climate change and um, the Six Americas, and and just how it's it's you know even when people aren't super concerned about it as voters, they are they acknowledge that it's happening. Um, and you know, just the differences between the AR5 and the AR4 is in the most recent report. Um, we the scientific consensus is that aerosols are cooling the planet less than we thought, um, and that there's less of a role of um, solar variation, and um, there's much more of a of a of a projected sea level rise, um, partly because of taking into account the fact that warm things expand, right? So we've been under predicting sea level rise. And so that is actually, I think, going to be a big issue for voters in places like Florida, Annapolis, you know, other kinds of places, you know, New York after um, Sandy. Um, So there, I think there are some hot hot spots where this is going to be an issue. Um, There's increased confidence that there will be more heavy rainfall events in the future. Um, But interestingly, a little bit less confidence about whether we'll have more drought, or more hurricanes. Um, and whether or not the last couple of years will kind of throw that uh, throw a wrench into the works, um, because in the in the years since the AR5 report came out, you know we've we've seen some pretty bad drought in the West, um, and I would say the other thing is you know the AR5 concluded that it's ex, it's now extremely likely, which means it's ninety five percent certain that h- human activities have caused more than half of the observed temperature increases from nineteen fifty one to twenty ten. And that's up from very likely or 90% in the AR4 report, um, which, you know, 5% doesn't seem like a lot, but, you know, it's incre- the increase in certainty is, is good. Um, we always want to be more certain about our predictions.
0: Yeah. When when that report came out, the, the AR5, I wrote that it's about the same certainty that we have that smoking causes cancer, mm-hmm. 95%.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say that, you know, there are, you know, nailing down the certainty, although there's still some things that... Are, are very uncertain we can probably have a whole episode devoted to clouds at some point um which is something in the news right now um but you know overall it's just interesting to see that just between the ar5 and the ar4 we're moving towards greater certainty in the science um and greater confidence in our predictions which is good that's where we would want um we, the direction we want to be going as we're improving our you know our models and our statistical analyses and and the studies that are happening um and that's also kind of reflected in this high degree of increased specificity in the discussion of climate change it was just in the 2008 dnc platform it was just so arm wavy and now you know there's just there there are actual numbers i mean i think in the 2008 report they said something like we want to reduce the amount of of carbon emissions to what scientists say we should like there's not even an actual number in it it's just whatever scientists say we'll do that (laughs) Which is, I mean, I guess it's cool, but, um, it's, it, there's, you know, versus, you know, now their commitments to actual percent decreases or benchmarks. Well, now we have
0: Paris too. And we have
1: Paris and yeah. So, so this, the specificity I think is good. So, you know, that gives a task force something to do, mm. right?
0: All right. <laughs> go go task, <laughs> everyone. Task force. <laughs> go to it. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So we're going to close the show with uh, with positive feedback. And this is where we try to highlight the week's good news on on the climate scene. And for me, you know, I have no, 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 no good news this week. I am just...
1: What about the hole in the ozone yeah. layer?
0: Uh, it's going away, right? That's great. Okay. That's my good... Yes. Thank you. <laughs> you saved me. <laughs>
1: Uh, mine was about, um, that, that study or not, it wasn't even a study. It was a a blog post about the jet stream crossing the equator, causing like climate chaos. And it was the end, you know, end of the world. And, um, and it was a really irresponsible blog post in my opinion, but it was not quite as irresponsible as the just tremendous amount of bad reporting on it. But what I liked about it was that scientists blogged about it, tweeted about, about it, and it shows that social media can be used as a sort of pre or even post publication peer review, and that climate Twitter is not, you know, we have a very healthy community on climate Twitter. And it shows that we're not afraid to call out dubious or hyperbolic claims uh at the you know even at the perceived risk of weakening our position right because you never want to give any ground um but just the fact that we're totally comfortable now saying yeah this study is like way overblown there's not, it's not climate chaos yeah it wasn't uh,
0: even a study it was just one guy that noticed something yeah really.
1: oh yeah you're right yeah it's not even a study it's just a an observation and and a lot of bad uh just hi- hyperbole and poor science behind <laughs> it
0: what about you andy
1: um,
2: I think it's coastal stuff. There's some good news emerging in various places about uh, mangrove restorations, like Sri Lanka. I think July 27th is World Mangrove Day, and Sri Lanka has basically led the, the way. Sea uh, Ecology. There's a group called Sea Ecology S E A C O L O G Y that's helped work with them to um, boost their commitments to restore and expand um, mangroves, which have all kinds of benefits, both carbon sucking and flood preventing. And in Australia, again, lots of doom and gloom about the Barrier Reef, but there's several studies in recent weeks that pointed to how important it is to cut the other insults to the reef, uh, sedimentation from ridiculous land mismanagement, like we do in the Midwest that causes our, you know, the the anoxic um, bloom in the Gulf. They have this issue that's really a big threat to the reef. And if you take away or reduce some of those other um, impacts on, the reef you can have much more resilience to heat and the other stresses that are coming with climate change so there's lots of possibilities um, in coastal areas like that
0: all right i think we'll leave it there that's our show for this week i hope everyone enjoyed it and please follow us on twitter at our warm regards and subscribe to our feed on itunes and soundcloud we want to make this your show so if there's something you think that we should discuss please let us know and that's it For Andy and Jacqueline and our producer Stephen Lacey, I'm Eric Holthouse. Thanks for listening, everybody.